Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Anna Kabeka. I'm here with a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Renee uh, Srini Pillay. And Dr. Srini Pillay, it's so great to have you here today. Thank you for being with me on this uh, really tough topic. We're going to be discussing PTSD and the effects of trauma, the effects of anxiety, and how that affects our, our, our outward look, our ability to connect in this world, ability to um, respond in this world. And so it's great to have you here today, Dr. Pillay. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Anna. And also, I think to really talk to you, because I, one of the major reasons I really love talking to you is that I know that you're a needle shifter and you don't want things to be the same all the time. And so it's fantastic to be in conversation with you. And hopefully people will get a lot out of this. Oh, they definitely will. As, as will I, as always, because you never know where our conversations go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. So I would tell our audience about your amazing background. Dr. Srini Pillay is a world-renowned Harvard psychiatrist, a brain expert, and he is the award-winning author of the motivational book of the year called Life Unlocked. Seven Revolutionary Lessons to Overcome Fear. He is the former director of the Anxiety Disorders Services at Harvard's McLean Hospital, consistently voted one of the top five hospitals in the United States. He graduated as the overall top medical student, won more awards during his residency at Harvard than any other resident, and is regarded as a pioneer in the field of applied brain science for corporations, self-help, schools, food, fashion, and the arts. Srini is also the CEO of Neuro Business Group, voted one of the top 20 movers and shakers in leadership development in the world, and is noted for his uncanny ability to translate complex brain science into usable tips. He's widely sought out by the media and has been featured on the Dr. Laura Berman Show on Oprah Radio, Martha Stewart, Whole Living, L, Cosmopolitan, Fox News, The New York Times, and numerous other media outlets. Srini has also recently spoken to the professional business women of California with high acclaim. His aim is to help people understand how we can all unleash the power of our brains to live happier and more productive lives. And, you know, with, with Srini, too, I mean, we've talked before about, about food and medicine and just our earlier conversation about the music and health and how that affects our, our brain and our cognition. Very impressive. Again, great to have you here. It's really lovely to be here. <laughs> well, let's go on and let's talk about PTSD and um, explain like how people get cla classified with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. So when people talk about um, post-traumatic stress disorder in a formal context, really what they're talking about is a, a diagnosis that comes from a book that is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, now currently in version five, which essentially has a set of criteria that relate to the fact that there has been a significant enough trauma that there's been persistent symptoms over a period of time, and that those persistent symptoms include things like re-experiencing the trauma, being provoked by stimuli that remind you of the trauma, and having several other symptoms like insomnia, anger, flashbacks, uh, and, and a host of other things. The reason I'm being that general about it is, that I guess the first thing I want to say is when I see anyone in my practice and I do a diagnostic evaluation. The first thing that I do is I, you know, I do a fairly robotic examination 
while I'm understanding the complexity of who's, of who's responding. And the first piece of feedback is, I usually say, I'm going to tell you two things. I'm going to give you formal feedback, and then I'm going to tell you what I really think. And then the formal feedback is, you meet criteria for PTSD or you don't, and this is why, and this is why this matters. And then usually what I really think is that the first thing is no two human beings are alike. So even if you fall into a category that's post-traumatic stress disorder, my number one thing is that when you position yourself for healing is just do not consider that a label that you're going to carry for the rest of your life. That really what's important is to recognize it. I'm not suggesting deny it, to, to know it, but to recognize that this experience is a pretty individual experience and that the more you can recognize how this applies to you and the more you can get involved in your own well-being and healing, the better it will be for you. Because the truth about psychiatric diagnosis, which I think is sort of you know, it's fascinating on so many levels, we have a lot of studies about reliability. Like I can make a diagnosis of PTSD, you can make a diagnosis of PTSD, and we'll be pretty close. But we have no studies on validity. We have no tissue diagnoses. So, you know, in, in gynecology, if you have a tumor, you, know, you can see the tissue under a microscope. In nephrology, in kidney disease, you can look at the kidney under a microscope. In psychiatry, we have a lot of brain imaging studies. We have a lot of data that helps us understand how we can change our brains. But we really do not have a final tissue diagnosis. And so the paradox is, when you come to me and you have PTSD, the first thing I'm going to say is, Please know this is your diagnosis and then do not make it a centerpiece in your identity. You know, you don't walk around saying, I am the flu or, you know, I am a heart attack or I am kidney disease. And in the same way, you don't have to be what your psychiatric diagnosis is. I just see that as a general guideline to then help you to get to start thinking about how you can approach managing this really very real challenge in life, regardless of what the cause is. I think that's a perfect statement is that we, we are not our label, right? You know, say yeah. that can go to anything. We are a diabetic and that's, you know, this is just uh, imbalancing uh, hormones and uh, increasing inflammation. And we've got to work on those things Like we keep going to the underlying, underlying root. And you know what, in, in my experience with PTSD and my own journey with it, including brain imaging studies, you know, neuro evaluations out the, out, you know, unbelievable day long neuro evaluations, et cetera, is, is recognizing, okay, these are symptoms of an underlying complex of, of things that are going on. And now how, knowing that now, what are the first steps that you work with your client in approaching therapy from that? So there are a couple of different things. In general, the model that I use is, is a biopsychosocial model. And it's an old model. And what it says is that there are biological underpinnings of what's going on. There are psychological underpinnings of what's going on. And there are social underpinnings of what's going on. Meaning, for example, if you've been traumatized and you have persistent anxiety, you may, for example, have a change in your brain chemistry. You may have a change in brain structures like the amygdala, which is the brain's anxiety center that may be overactivated. You may get a change in the size of your long-term memory center, like the hippocampus, which stores memories, and it's these very memories that come back to haunt you. So these are the kinds of biological things that happen, and there are biologic interventions that we can use to target those biological changes. But in addition to that, there's another, there are other ways of looking at what's going on, like psychologically. What are your psychological vulnerabilities? 
you know, do you have what we call anxiety sensitivity? Like there are people in the world, two people can go through the same trauma, one person can develop PTSD and the other person cannot. And so there's an index called the anxiety sensitivity index that tells you whether you actually have a greater sensitivity to anxiety and you, you, and you are actually vulnerable in that way and that's why you develop those symptoms. But psychologically, this can also have to do with your current relationships, repeated um, traumas, the fact that um, separations are particularly difficult for you, that there are ways in which your identity and your ego structure has been affected so that you, you have to learn to stand up for yourself more than other people do. So you can start to talk about it in that way. And then socially, I think PTSD has a lot to do with sort of whether or not you feel socially supported after the event and following the event. And a lot of times the trauma is so embarrassing for people uh, or they, they feel alienated from everyone else that, that they don't actually have or even seek out the support that they could get. And so I think if we look at those three dimensions, the biological, the psychological, and the social, then we start to have a good idea of what could cause PTSD. And then we have a good idea of how you can, what investigations you need to do and I usually will investigate in those three categories, and then I will treat in those three categories as well. Mm, you know, I think the really key point is that you're talking about the anxiety sensitivity index, and you think, okay, well, um, one of our listeners maybe have experienced uh, a trauma and say, well, my neighbor, you know, had the same thing happen, and and she, you know, we were in this together, and same situation, et cetera, but total different reaction, coping. Um, behavior results and the question is okay well why why me and I know that there are genetic um, predispositions like we've looked at with Navy SEALs in the water dunking test okay dunk a Navy uh, Navy SEAL a Navy diver and to the point of passing out and those that come up and say hey I want to do this again like okay on you go the ones are like heck now and then there's a genetic linked to that type of behavior certainly so we can we can have some association there and and also noting that sometimes it's trauma upon trauma upon trauma like this is the icing on the cake and or the physiology the hormonal balance is off one thing that is really significant is what i've looked at with um the research i've done is looking at the resurgence or the difficulty with the times of our life when we have significant hormonal changes when we've had a history of past trauma. So we've seen the research in um, veterans, women veterans, for example, with a history of uh, childhood abuse or sexual abuse, having a much more also having a much more significant or veterans who have been in a war having a much more significant difficulty in the menopause with increased depression, increased anxiety during this time of hormonal fluctuations, and then postpartum depression. You know, is, is there an increased link with that drop of protective, and I believe it's also linked to the protective effects of progesterone, and now that's depleted during this time, or with chronic ongoing stress, progesterone levels are depleted, so we have less of a, a physiologic cushion as well. Absolutely. You know, just to comment on some of the things you said, the first example you used of dunking the Navy SEALs underwater um, is, is actually, it's, there's one of the things that's quite fascinating about that is that they've recently started to do brain-based interventions with the Navy SEALs. Uh, and they find that when they teach them how to regulate the, their amygdala activity, they teach them that there's an anxiety center in your brain 
and that's called the amygdala, and this anxiety center is actually blasting through your, your, your brain and the rest of your body, but it's causing you to freeze or fly or just want to, want to get out of that situation. They teach them how the frontal cortex, which is your thinking brain, can actually connect with the anxiety center. And by learning techniques to turn your frontal cortex back on, you can turn off this anxiety and actually withstand the strain of pool calm, which is what, which is what that dunking test is called. So uh, it's cool that they've used it and they've shown, a, they've shown a significant shift in the number of people who will pass pool comp just by using brain-based interventions. So when we get to talking about that, I'll mention what some of those interventions are, but just want to say that I think that's a great model where we can see that such a highly strenuous activity, that, which most SEALs generally fail, can actually, you can change the outcome by just by thinking differently. And I think overarchingly, you know, one of the things I think we're talking about is we're talking about biopsychosocial and we're talking about hormonal changes and changes before pregnancy and changes after. I'm sure at the back of people's minds is this question of, well, you know, how do I do this? Like, how do I, like, are you telling me I, just, I should just talk to myself differently or think differently? And, and yes, I am. And I think one of the things that's, I took this for granted for the longest time, that people just knew that this was the case. But I'm going to say explicitly that self-talk is a way of reorganizing your brain. So your brain has the ability to change, and this is called neuroplasticity. And because it has this ability to change, either therapy or self-talk or hormonal treatments or different foods or medications can actually change your brain structure and functioning. So that's point number one. That's the great hope we have about all of this, that the brain can change. I think point number two is that you can change the brain with self-talk. So I'll give you a classic example. If you say to your brain, say you, you're in a tough situation, you think, you know what, I'm really going to beat this. If you say, I'm going to crush this, it's less effective than if you say you're going to crush this. So there's a study that's actually looked at this and shown that people who treat themselves in the third person are actually more effective in increasing their confidence to be able to carry stuff out than people who say, I'm going to crush this. So when you know a simple fact like that, it's like, wow. So when I talk to myself, I should be like, you know what, when you say to yourself, you go, girl, you're, you're actually giving yourself a more effective instruction than if you say, I'm going to do that. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that this and other forms of self-talk, and you tell me when you want to talk about what forms of self-talk, but this and other forms of self-talk can actually change the way in which your brain is structured. And we now have a tremendous number of studies that point us in the right directions about what kind of self-talk can help. And as you know, Anna, I was just talking to Anna about this earlier and was saying that, you know, after you have that much experience of what we do, I think you recognize that you don't want to create false promises for people. You don't want to say, oh, use this because everybody uses it and it's going to work for you. But what we can say is that we have very well-researched systems, scaffoldings that we can give to people and that people can then take those scaffoldings and make it applicable to them. So in the, in the cases that you're, that you're talking about, you know, yes, there is an association with premenstrual effects, but it also is going to be different for someone who has another partner's support versus someone who doesn't. And it's going to be different for someone who has a mortgage payment that they can't pay than for someone who doesn't. So for every human being, there's a complexity. 
I really think that sometimes people think, oh my God, this is so much information, I can't do this. If you start with the scaffolding, that's a great way to begin. And then you build on that little by little until you, you can actually manage yourself. And studies do show that a lot of the changes that, that you were talking about are changes we can reverse simply by changing our perspective on things so that your brain views the world differently. No, I love that. And I love what you said is that, you know, the speaking to yourself in the third party, but is that the same as like the royal we, like we are, you know, would that work the same way? Because you think no, of that, the royal we, and I'm wondering. No, I think the royal we is more, is, is not really, is not really taking any ownership for anything. Mm. So, whereas when you're saying you, you're personalizing it to the person that is you. Mm. And I think part of why I think that happens is that paradoxically, I think if you were, you know, there's a lot more to say about first and third person. I don't want to complicate the uh, thread of our conversation, but I'll just say that, that I think first not taking the diagnosis that seriously in the sense that you let it limit you. And then secondly, recognizing that there are these biological, psychological, and social dimensions. And then thirdly, know that what, exactly what you were saying, which is that some of these biological dimensions involve hormonal changes that create real vulnerabilities for people. Different people have different sensitivities. And you can change your brain simply by changing the way in which you talk to yourself. And we can talk about those things when, when you feel like we're ready for it. Yeah, no, I think we are. Unless you want to hit on another, you want to go talk more about the emotional, biological, and the social, what you do from there after your initial evaluation. Okay, you've got these three parts that you've discerned, you know, need a specific level of attention. What, what do you do from there? So the first thing is from a biological perspective, um, and this is sort of an interesting thing to talk about. There are a lot of people out there saying, hey, you know, do this and target that region and you'll change your brain. You know, neural circuits, there are billions of neurons. So they're very complex. There are, there are multiple circuits going on at the same time. In fact, the first thing I'll say about this is that people imagine they're either happy or sad or they're anxious or calm. But a lot of these, a lot of these opposites are operating in the brain at the same time. And more and more, we're beginning to see that we're very complex people. It's not a question of, being, of having your happiness circuit on and your sadness circuit off. It's a question of where you want to take your brain's flashlight, which is your attentional center, and how you want to, and which circuit you want to place it on. Now, do we know every component of the circuit? No. Do we know that we're 100% foolproof about this? No. But do we know that there are statistically significant ways in which you can change your life by changing how you use this flashlight? Absolutely. And so that's what we can start to talk about. We can start to say, so there's a big the attention, the way you think about things in your own head is very complex, but there's a flashlight effect that I refer to that is actually your, your, the, connect, the, the, new, the wiring that goes from your frontal cortex to your parietal cortex. So this flashlight, if you have the flashlight on the trauma and you keep it on the trauma, it, it's valid and it's real and we understand that, but you're not doing yourself any favors. You know, so a, a, a huge body uh, of studies has actually shown something that shocked me even when I wrote the chapter on it. So I'm, I'm on a committee for disasters and disaster prevention and how you work with people in, in traumatized situations. And when you, 
you know, I, I, I was writing this chapter on debriefing and how after a trauma, you might want to, directly after that, you might want to debrief and say, this is what happened and talk to other people about it. I looked at the research and I was like, man, this research is strange. Like most studies show that debriefing either has no effect or a negative effect on the trauma. And so I wrote in just one sentence and then had it peer reviewed by other experts in trauma. And it came back with a huge red circle around, please remove debriefing. There is no evidence to show that debriefing helps at all. And so I looked a little further into trying to understand why this might be the case. Now, of course, if you have the trauma, you mention it and you talk about it and you, there's some amount of venting that's necessary. But we tend to believe that if we go over it over and over again, we're helping ourselves. But what you're actually doing is imprinting the memory in your brain really firmly. And it's tempting to keep on doing this because there is a relief in it. You know, this pain is an odd thing psychologically and physically. It's like when you're in pain, your body re releases endorphins and encephalins. And that's a metaphor for why sometimes we will revisit the pain because your body will release these other pain-relieving chemicals to make you feel better. You know, it's like that's why sometimes a good cry is great. You know, our body works in complex ways. So if you... If you then say to yourself, okay, then I'm not going to debrief, part of what you need to realize is that you don't want to imprint these memories into your hippocampus, which is vulnerable. This is your long-term memory, which is vulnerable. You want to take this flashlight and place it on your resilience because anyone who is listening to this has most likely been touched by trauma in some way. But maybe what you don't realize is that you are amazingly resilient for even being here and even wanting to take charge of your own life. And I think so often, because you've had this major dramatic event that's trauma, you actually forget that, you forget about your resilience. But no matter how horrible the trauma was, no matter how, mu how much you've suffered, you still are resilient and you have this capability in your brain. And there are ways in, we, in which we can turn this on so that you can take this flashlight and, and place it somewhere else. Let's talk about those ways. I mean, that's so important is knowing that, first of all, we, we do have a frontal cortex that makes us the most highly de developed beings in this world. So being able to use that as a, you know, as a judgment center, keep that turned on when we go into this primal state with our PTSD, that primal state of fear, there's that frontal cortex, hippocampal disconnect. You know what you say? Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, how do we, okay, regain that frontal control and know, and, and one of the big reasons, Srini, that I want to emphasize is that that whole sense of going through trauma, being disconnected, and, and in, in my book, I talk about the cortisol oxytocin disconnect, you know, <laughs> fatigue and disconnection, why we reach for a Red Bull in one hand and the divorce attorney in the other, you know, what makes us disconnect, burnout from our jobs, et cetera, and, and understanding, okay, well, there's a shift, our, our, why did we behave in certain in ways and I call it oxytocin seeking behaviors whether it's um, you know excessive shopping gambling drinking um, sex you know what are what are these oxytocin seeking behaviors that become therapy to us versus you know how do we refocus the flashlight give our frontal cortex regain that control regain that um, what do you call it that link that uh, focus of control that you know <laughs> Highway control, I don't know, but yeah, yeah. powerful. So, so I think one of the things that happens is when you are under stress, 
Stress precipitates habit pathways in the brain. It's what I call habit hell. And so you keep, you get stuck in your habit and you keep on doing the same thing over and over again. Now, the, the fancy psychological term for this is, there, there are many terms for it, but one of them is repetition compulsion. And this was first discovered when you know, a bunch of psychologists, including Freud, was, was sort of looking at, uh, Freud was a psychiatrist, but a bunch of people who were interested in human psychology were, were looking at the way children behave. And, and what they found was that, that it was a strange behavior that children threw their toys out, then cried about the very thing that they did, uh, and then had their mothers bring their toys back, got really happy about it, but then the, threw the toy out again. And one of the things that they asked was, is it possible that as adults, we fall into the same pattern where what we do is seek out repeating these traumatic events, like throwing it out, so we can practice recovering from it. Mm -hmm. And so I would just ask, say, the first thing that I would really ask people to think about more deeply is if you're caught in habit hell, if you find yourself relationship after relationship, you know, you think the person's great, you're like with all the signals are fine, then how did you end up in this hellhole again? So like, you know, what's going on? What am I missing? Remember that your perception is probably affected because when your anxiety center is super activated, it, it goes, the earthquakes in your anxiety center translate into aftershocks in your thinking brain. So even the way you see the world, and you know, people will blame themselves for this. They'll say like, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm ridiculous, I'm idiotic. Like how, no, you're not an idiot. You have a high level of anxiety that's preventing you from seeing the world a certain way. Mm -hmm. So let's get cracking with figure out how, figuring out how we're going to be controlling the center. Mm -hmm. So there's a mnemonic that I use called CIRCA, which is C-I-R-C-A, which is a simple mnemonic, but each of those letters stands for something. And each of those letters has a tremendous amount of research backing it up in helping to reinstate this anxiety center frontal cortex connection to decrease the anxiety. The C stands for chunking which is essentially take this whole big situation and this horrible challenge ahead of you and break it down into one step at a time. Chunk it into little pieces because your brain gets overwhelmed when you think, oh my God, how am I going to go to work, take care of my kid, deal with this trauma, go on a date? It's like, wait a minute, let's chunk it down, figure out how we're going to do one thing at a time. And when you do that, your brain, your amygdala will actually relax because it activates your, your, there's a working memory part of your brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that, that actually gets activated. So, so the first thing is, is chunk it up. The second, which I actually do first when I, when I think about any of my own anxieties or when I work with people, is ignore the threat, the threatening narrative. You know how after a trauma, you actually have this threatening narrative like, oh my God, how did this happen? And you get afraid all the time. Every time you see anybody, when you go on a date, if you see a war movie, if your trauma was, was you know, be, being a veteran, whatever it is, you start to get, you have all these thoughts in your head. And what we realize now is that thoughts, fear thoughts, are just electrical activations in your brain. Really, that's what they are. They're habitual electrical activations in your brain. And if you take your flashlight off of those activations and place it on your breath, it's as simple as that. It can really help you. Now, this may sound like a funny kind of intervention because it's, it's, it's like mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. And people often underestimate the power of this. But this can turn off your anxiety circuits. It can turn on your creativity circuits. And it can even change your genes. And that's what's so powerful about it. So I would strongly recommend not leaving that step out. The R stands for reality check. 
And what reality check is, is this too shall pass. You know, yes. whatever horribleness you're having in your life right now, no matter what's going on, it is going to pass because that's just the nature of time. So allow it to pass and allow yourself to be part of a changing world so that you can move toward what you want. The second C is control check. And this is really just the serenity prayer, which is, you know, we try to control everything. It's like, oh my God, you know, my, my daughter's going to school. I don't know what's going on with her grades. How am I going to control my schedule? Is everything. Well, you know, you can't really control the stock market if you're not in the stock market. You can't really control the forces of the world that are just way beyond our control. So I would say identify two things that are beyond your control that you've been trying to control and let them go. And then the last A is attentional shift, which is taking your brain's flashlight and putting it on the solution. Yes, you've had a trauma. Yes, we understand the intensity of it. Yes, you can tell that story. But if you tell the story, tell it in the context of your resilience, of how you recovered from this horrible event, rather than I had this horrible event happen to me. Take the power back into your own hands. And then in that context, ask yourself, what would someone in my position do? Like there have been people in the world, even people who are vulnerable to trauma, who have overcome that, the, the ways in which trauma holds you back. So how do you do that? And those five steps, chunking, ignoring the fearful narratives, reality check, control check, and attentional shift, are one of the first five ways that I generally work with people in helping them take stabilize what's going on in the anxiety center so your brain's not just overrun with anxiety and also help your thinking brain get back online. Because when you do that, then you will start to see situations differently. You'll see the jerk in the person who is a jerk. You'll see the potential trauma in a situation that is traumatizing. Whereas if your anxiety takes over, it, it just causes blindness to that kind of stuff and it perpetuates a vicious cycle. You know, I love this thing, this habit hell that you're talking about. And I think, you know, immediately I'm like, okay, just like as the um, dropping with like, don't fall into the rabbit hole, right? Don't fall into the rabbit or habit hole, or habit hell. And, right. and that's so, I mean, that's a really good visual for that. And, and what I explain to patients who have had PTSD is like, well, if you, and to explain someone, also a family member trying to understand the person who's going through the, the changes, emotional and otherwise, physical, et cetera, is that when we have, like with, with the brain, when we have a seizure, for example, our neurologist will say, well, you know, we don't see anything organic, et cetera, maybe, probably won't have another seizure, may not. But once they have two seizures, we know that that habit is formed. So that's, that's right. how fast. And we know they're going to have a third seizure and we need to intervene, you know, with... Exactly. And, and well, you don't think of that with an emotional experience, but it's, it's the same, right? Absolutely. I mean, the phenomenon is called kindling and it's a little bit like firewood. You know, you throw one on top of the other, all of a sudden you have an out of control situation. So... In, when you think about um, how neurons behave, you know, if you get, a, and the, the thing underlying this, the, the fancy term for it is LTP, which is long-term potentiation, which simply means that when your neurons are hit by the same stimulus over and over again, they either release more neurotransmitter or the, tra- or, or the chemicals that, that are reaching the other neuron, the other neuron becomes much more sensitive. So you are in a more vulnerable state where you're getting heightened effects. And 
And so that heightened effect makes that pathway the pathway of choice. It becomes the default. It becomes the trench that's already been dug for electrons to flow into rather than find a new way around that. And, you know, I, I was thinking, I wanted to add a comment to one of the things you said, uh, which is sort of a, a generalized sweeping comment, but I think it has some value, which is uh, when, when you were talking about oxytocin and cortisol, um, you know, if you think about some findings that, that are replicable or, or, you know, that we really believe, oxytocin is associated with relaxation. It is associated with hugging. It is associated with trust. And cortisol, although it's a very complicated story, is often called a stress hormone for a reason. It's because it shoots right up when you're under conditions of extreme stress in certain situations. Now, you take those two things, oxytocin and cortisol, and you think about trust versus stress. And then you ask yourself, how many trusting situations do I have in my life? Not only with other people, but with yourself. How true are you being to yourself so that when you're having a conversation like we're having, we're having it with a deep level of truth because we won't really believe in what we're talking about. But if I didn't believe any of this and I showed up, I'd probably be able to say the same thing. But I will, I'll feel disconnected within myself. I'll feel like something is off kilter. So ask yourself to what extent you feel like there's an alignment within yourself with what you're doing in your life. And that automatically shifts what's going on in the stress meter. Just by having this kind of congruous life you can change what's going on in the cortisol level because you're not working in a way that disconnects you from things. You know, when you talked about burnout earlier, burnout is, is really a, it, it's because of a mismatch between what you are and the, the situation that surrounds you. And the more you can fit, even from an evolutionary perspective, the greater the chances are that you will thrive uh, in, your, in your situation. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, um, Srini, it's, I mean, it's so true. It's that sense like what you had said too, that, that you know, where you feel and, and you've seen this happen with our, with our patients, with other people, is that, that trench, that stuck. I mean, that's really a powerful understanding that, okay, this is a, a neurologic pattern. And then now how do we focus, turn on our flashlight towards the frontal cortex? Yeah. How can we do that to shift this, to turn this around and to keep it? Because I know from myself with chronic PTSD and as much as it was um, triggers on, I mean, there were triggers on a daily basis, you know, living uh, in the home of the trauma or down the street from the hospital of the trauma and, um, and, you know, having those constant triggers and just thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to think myself better. I can think myself through it. And, and yet, you know, three to five hours of sleep a night, um, the constant hypervigilance fear that something else was going to happen to one of my children. And just that, you know, that hypervigilance. And I can't, I don't even, I, I didn't even know that there was any, any other way when I'm in that mode, right? You don't know that you're so hypervigilant and you don't feel it. The triggers, the flashbacks, and you're like, okay, well, you know, how do I keep that from coming into my reality? And, and if I'm living in the situation, you know, or around the situation of the trauma, you know, how do I, how do I also remove that energetic attachment to the, uh, to the place? Yeah. And I think a I lot of that. things right there, but you can handle it. 
<laughs> well, the, so the, briefly, the thing about looking, you know, re reinstating the frontal cortex is really circa and then a couple of other comments. Um, I just want to point out that one of the big issues, which when I first came across this, I was like, oh, God, this sounds so not interesting. But the more I looked at the research and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that fear of fear is one of the most important constructs for a reason underlying anxiety. That if you look at anxiety sensitivity or if you look at panic, for example, fear of fear is a huge thing. So you may say, well, you know, what are you talking about? What other option do I have? Like, am I supposed to be like, I love fear? Well, you have to reappraise it. So aside from Circa, two other, you know, well, incorporated in Circa are two huge concepts, which are distraction or refocusing and reappraisal. Now, the brain is what is a resource constraint. There's a certain amount of constraint. You know, it exists in your skull. It's got what it's got, but it's here. But it's dynamically configured. Now, let's say, and you have many more units than this, but let's say for the purposes of definition, you've got 10 attentional units, right? Two for your daughter, two for supermarketing, two for being in this video, two for finishing your work. You know, so you've got 10 attentional units. When you have fear of fear, your attention, all, of those 10 units, eight or nine suddenly become occupied by fear. All your brain can think about is threat, and your attention is only placed on the threat. That's where the hypervigilance comes from. And so your job is to peel that back slowly. It's to say, how about I give myself three more units of, att of attention? Because I can't run the rest of my life. You can't go around saying, I'm so dumb, why is my life falling apart? You know, something must be terribly wrong. There is something wrong. What's wrong is that you're not taking care of your attentional centers because your automatic reaction is to fear the fear. So that's why ignoring the mental narrative is such an important piece of circa. It's because it is a way of peeling back that relationship with fear. You know, we, all emotions are electrical activations in your brain. And you have a choice because you have a part of you that's an observing self and a part of you that's an experiencing self. And you're, this is all one self. But if you can step aside and start to observe yourself and say, oh, that's interesting, I guess, instead of saying, oh, my God, I am so freaked out by the situation, you could say, that's interesting. I guess my amygdala is activating. I'm totally freaking out. It's not like you're, you're denying it, but you're actually saying, you know, uh, my brain wiring is such that it's just going crazy. So I, I don't know what to do about it. So let me figure out how I can go tap into that wiring and, and change it in a way that I want to change it. Now, I'm imitating this because I want anyone watching this, anyone listening to you or reading what you're writing to understand that you can actually stop and have a more impersonal look at what's going on because it's not that romantic, but every feeling you have, you know, the sudden love you feel for some amazing human being you see walk by, the beautifulness of your child, you know, the amazing nostalgia of your halcyon days. All of this is electrical activation in your brain. Now, is it just electrical activation? That's up for grabs. I don't think it's just that. But I think it is electrical activation in your brain. And it's activation that you can take a look at. So when you take a look at this, you are not fearing fear anymore. You're observing fear. You're not trying to psych yourself out of the fear. You're not saying, I, don't, I, I should not be afraid, or I'm bad to be afraid. You're just taking a look at it, and you're saying, wow, check it out. Totally freaking out. And 
when you when you do that, that's step number one in really in any situation, whether you're so you're anxious socially, you know, as you're going to bed, just to say, you know, it's funny. I used to I used to joke around with people about this. Um, I used to joke around with it as 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 hangovers being a great learning experience, because you know that there's that feeling you get sometimes, even if you didn't drink a lot. The next day you're like, oh my god, I'm a horrible person. I, I must have done something wrong. Was I inappropriate? Did I say something I shouldn't have? And everybody knows what that feeling's like. Well, you can stop that feeling, right? You can actually stop that feeling by saying, this is my brain generating random narratives about nothing. Like, done, it's over. And so I want to just convey this, this observational quality because the observational quality is, I think, the root to beginning to get yourself out of this habit hell. You know, you, you basically say, oh, yeah, really, brain, you want to generate these narratives? Guess what? I'm just going to check it out. And, and I'm saying this that casually, but I cannot overemphasize how many studies there are that show how effective this is. I mean, there are tremendous. I, that's one scientific finding. I will, I'll be able to stand on a pedestal and scream out to the world mm-hmm. that just when you have those narratives, become an observer of them rather than just getting immersed and lost in them. It's a huge maneuver. Yeah, no, I can see definitely how helpful and therapeutic that will be. And in just thinking that, just, um, you know, the uh, thought that comes to me is like, uh, let's not follow the past, let's follow the process forward, right? And so it's like, where's our, you know, where is this, like, as the observer for me, okay, well, where is this thought pattern coming from? It's from the past. Well, what's the reality of my present? And what's the process to move forward? And, you know, thinking things through that way has been tr- tremendously therapeutic for me. The other thing, and I think it's part of your circa too, but is, is the technique that I found incredibly helpful was compartmentalization. So for example, in working in my medical office and, and people wanting to, to speak with me or, or thoughts coming into my head about my loss and my grief and, and being able to say, okay, well, you know, uh, from 8 to 8.15 at night, this is when I'm going to think about it. And to allow myself to shift back into the present Absolutely. and not to look back and say, but I'm going to honor those emotions at 8 to 8.15. I felt like that just began. Then it was a weekly scheduled time with myself and emotions and just say, okay, well, that's Sunday at 8 o'clock. You know? And, and um, by doing that, I'm just wondering, am I, am I still being therapeutic in doing that? And then, you know, slowly moving away, or is it still creating um, those trenches? I, I would say if you're going to set time aside to do that, then frame it in terms of resilience. Mm. Not just like, look what happened to me, but it's kind of amazing that I survived such a horrible thing and that I'm actually moving forward with my life despite that. When I think about it, those things help me back in X, Y, or Z way. But what's something in me that wants to live, and there's something in me that wants to live, you know, productively or proactively. You know, I, I think a big, uh, a big help here is um, something that is a word, that's, that's a big word again, but it's, it's really, it's called eudaimonia. Oh, which I love is, that word. <laughs> which, is, uh, which contrasts with hedonia. So hedonia is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Everybody knows how great that is. And then there's eudaimonia, which is about well-being, which is meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it sounds very iffy, but, but studies are beginning to show increasingly that the reward center in the brain, the nucleus accumbens is part of that, actually activates for longer in adolescents 
who are taught to focus on well-being, meaning and purpose, rather than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, you know, no one's saying those things in whatever measure that is that safe for you are, are bad in, in of themselves, but they don't correlate with this feeling of, of reward that we're talking about. So uh, to that extent. So, so the question is, well, when we talk about meaning and purpose, like what is that? And how does that relate to trauma? Well, I think sense of purpose is one of the strongest ways in which you can give yourself the fuel you need to move forward in life. And contrary to what a lot of people think, I don't think that sense of purpose, and this is a little controversial, but you know, I think you know me by now, but I, 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 contrary to what a lot of people think, I, I think sense of purpose is more about what, what makes you feel like you've got your groove on rather than how you're connecting to other people. Like you ask somebody what their sense of purpose is and they'll say, I want to help other people or I want to save the earth or I want to do something with green energy. There's nothing wrong with that. But that deliberate intention, I think, is far less powerful. And I, you know, Aristotle talked about this a long time ago. And, and I think I'm in, I'm in alignment with his view of this, which is that forget about the object of your sense of purpose. You know, if your sense of purpose is like, I just like playing music and I just like making food. And forget about like, how to make it into a business or anything. Just if that's what you love, when you allow yourself to sink into that love and absorb it, you know, absorb it like a sponge, you will make contact with what we call virtue. And that virtue will inspire you to serve others. And when you are inspired to serve others, it's a very different thing than if you're trying to morally whip yourself into shape to serve others or any version of that. So I always encourage my, my, my patients when I see them is to say, let's look at sense of purpose. But really, I just want you to tell me the most selfish thing that you could possibly do that would really make you feel like you've got your groove on. And once we start going into that, <coughs> excuse me, but you know, once you start going into that, you actually start to realize, you know what, life is much better when I'm doing what I love. And it's not going to come to you in one day. You know, like for a lot of people, it's like, you know, I don't even have time to think about what I'm doing what I love. Like, I've got to go to work. I've got to make money. I've got to pay the mortgage. Like, I, I don't have time. Well, maybe you deserve at least 30 minutes of time somewhere whether you're in the bathroom, taking a shower, going for a drive, just thinking about, like, what do I love in the world? Not how am I going to get there? Not what's the process to get there? Not, none of that. Just how do you sink into the stuff that you love? And when you do that, you will connect with virtue. And I really believe that connection with virtue is, is not, again, like a moral thing. Virtue is, and, and this is an opinion and, and not a fact, but... Virtue, I believe every human being on earth is imbued with the sense of virtue mm. and, and the love of doing things for other people. And I think we get caught up in all kinds of things that distract us from that. And I think that if we can connect with what we love, you know, I think everybody, you can even think about that in a casual way, right? It's like when you're having an awesome day and someone says, can you please pass the salt? Like you feel like, yeah, man, I'll pass the salt. Like this, that's great. Right, yeah. But if you're not having an awesome day and someone says pass the salt, you'll be like, oh, sure, here. But it's like, oh, everything's an effort. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, I think, the, 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 I think that if we focused on being happy, we needn't fear that it's going to drive us into selfish land and we're never going to connect with others. I think genuine self-connection makes human beings want to connect with others. And, and I think we can do a lot for one another that way. Mm. And I, I agree. And, and this is where um, stress oppose, 
opposes the self-connection, but like following circa, taking that breath, regaining the presence, connecting to yourself, your truth, your virtue. I, I love this because it's so in alignment with, with everything I believe, and it's in alignment with biblical principles as well, is that you're connecting to this, this truth, and then you're, through that we connect to other people. And that's the, the whole concept of putting your oxygen mask on first, right? It's that sense yep. of, hey, we have to survive our, we've got to survive our, our spirit. We have to... Um, be so connected and, and have that intention of, of and be in that place where we can do more good mm-hmm. versus when we're like, oh, you know, go get yourself yourself. Right. Right. No, I think, I think you're, on your way out. <laughs> you know, it's a, it is the whole know thyself principle, the whole idea that if you know yourself, you will be able to give more of yourself. And, you know, I think a lot of times we feel like we've got to imitate success or look at what that person said about success. Really, no. The, the, the success really is within you. Like, it, in my mind, success is not, I mean, some people have a certain propensity, as you said, you know, genetically, positively, or negatively. They have a certain environment. That's all true. But success, in my opinion, is when we, the human brain is such a complex organ that I don't think it's about just having this amazing perfection in your head. I think success is when you decide to take yourself on. And you say, you know what? I am going to move forward with this, and I am going to make this happen. Because, you know, at the end of all my fancy neurobiology and this and that, really what I think is you live, you die, you do something in between. You don't really know what happens at any other point. So make the best of it. And make the best of it now, because... I think people have this unconscious thought. We all do. And you know, when I think when I talk about people, it sounds like I've escaped all of these vulnerabilities. I have a lot of them myself. But I, I think we tend to think, you know, if I if I feel sorry for myself, and you know, we all need a little bit of that sometime, but that that somehow the, someone in the world is going to notice, and somehow we're going to get rescued. And then you sit there and you're tapping your fingers and you're looking around. It's like, wait a minute, another year, another five years, another decade. There's no rescue in sight. And so that's why I say, you know, take charge of life, you know, tinker along with it, figure out how you can move forward and don't expect yourself to know every time. You know, people who are successful will always give you the formula for success. And I think that's nonsense. I think the whole notion that there's one formula for all is absurd. I think, you know, in the same way that I have Circa or I have other ideas, these are not things you should just take on and then just do it, do it like a machine. It, it's, I think the beautiful piece of it is bringing the, the subtle quality of who you are as a human being to the table mm-hmm. and inviting that part of yourself to the table and, and even bringing it out in conversation. You know, I, I have this habit sometimes if I'm arguing with a friend, I have a real hard time, even if I'm following the argument and I'm recognizing that they're right, in certain situations, because I've so stubbornly held on to this idea for a long time, I just won't let, I won't let go of it, but I know they're right. And so I'll say, look, like factually, I think what you're saying is right, but there's no way I'm going to be, I just, my ego is too involved in this. Can we come back to this tomorrow? And it's, it's like, you recognize something about yourself. You recognize you're being stubborn. I don't want to endlessly argue myself to the ground, which I can do. Mm-hmm. You know, I can recognize, like I think when we all have this glimmer of truth and every human being Really, if you trust your intuition about this, there is this glimmer of truth that makes itself known to you. Pay attention to it. Mm. You're not subjected to your own scientific testing. Let it be your hypothesis. You know, this, is, this particular thing that I'm talking about 
you know, all, all feelings are, are representations of body states. And so even intuitive feelings are, represent, are representations of body states. So intuitions are a sudden change in your philosophy, in your physiology, that actually um, is not something that you can, that's perceptible, but it's subtle. Your insula in your brain picks it up and it sends it to the cortex for interpretation. Now, if it's too subtle, your, your, your thinking brain is not going to be able to make sense of it. It's like you're among somebody, you're like, oh, this is something about this person that like, turns me out, but I can't. I'm being so biased about this. You don't have to conclude you're right. All you have to do is do what I call insular mapping, which is keep on collecting your data. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just get more and more information and see what your frontal cortex thinks about. At the end of it, it may say, you know what, you're wrong. This just doesn't add up. Or it may say, thank God you paid attention to those subtle things because as we've collected the subtle data, we now know what is. And, you know, fear can distort that. It can make you think everything is a snake when, in fact, it's a coiled rope. So you don't want to – the other side to that is you don't want to go around thinking your world is full of snakes if, if what you have is a, is a bunch of coiled ropes. Mm -hmm. But you do want to allow your, yourself to take in information and not jump on it immediately. You know, take your time. There's time to tinker always. <laughs> time to tinker with martini in hand. Absolutely. Uh, that sounds good. Srini, is there any other areas related to PTSD and the, and the resolution or the um, recovery that you want to talk about? I mean, I could talk about this for days. So <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to think about... There another um, therapeutic modality, I think, that... Um, you mean, so aside from, from reaching into your brain and sort of, yeah. um, you know, maybe I could talk a little bit about more about what, what I meant by reappraisal or distraction, which have shown to decrease amygdala activation and, and restore activation in the frontal cortex. They're part of Circa, but, you know, in case you don't want to think of all of Circa, remember that, remember that distraction can decrease pain. So we know from physical pain studies that if two people have, are administered the exact same pain, if one person's fo person focuses on the pain and the other person focuses somewhere else, the person who focuses somewhere else actually feels less pain. Mm. But it's the same amount of pain. It's the same thing psychologically. You know, we know there's a reality that's going on in our lives, but we need to pay as much attention to recovery as we do to what happened to us. And so I think distraction now has a tremendous amount of research supporting it. And like you said about putting aside a time of the day where you're paying attention to it, if you find yourself consumed by these thoughts, then putting aside time where you're actually, you're saying, you know what, my whole life is so stressed, but between five and six, I'm going to be so not stressed, you know, in, for, in whatever way is important. That's and then reappraisal is, is really going in and looking at, asking yourself to tell your exact life story in a completely different way with a completely different slant. So you say, I, I was in a relationship, I was traumatized, my whole family was traumatized, I had a really hard time getting out of it because I was hypervigilant and I couldn't pay attention to anything besides the fear and the threat and it kept me stuck. All true. Okay? I was in a relationship where I was not able to see at that time the things that would come my way. And now that I take a look at it, I forgive myself and let go of my feelings about the other because I want to move on. Same story, same person, different intention. 
I love that example. That's fantastic. One other thing we talked about before we started uh, recording was about the stored memories, these strongly formed stored memories, and that how memories um, create these changes in conformation of proteins in the brain. Can you go into that a little bit more and explain that? Help me understand that better. Sure. So when we think about memory, we tend to think of it as like a whole big story, right? But you can imagine the brain doesn't have storybooks in it where it's like opening up stories and reading stories to itself. As soon as any experience hits your brain, it becomes converted into electrical impulses that changes what's happening at the brain connections called synapses. Now, in the hippocampus or long-term memory, there are synapses, which is, which is brain connections, that are altered by new experiences, to, and then these create protein conformational changes in that region of, of, of the connections between two neurons. Remember, there are billions of these. So memories are really just changes to what's going on in your neurons and these protein conformational changes in, in your hippocampus. So when you think about how you can change that, aside from medication, there are a lot of other interventions that can help you figure out a place where you want to put those memories, realize how you want to respond to those memories, react to those memories differently. And by doing that, you are actually rechanging the conformation of those proteins in your brain. So we have, I think the beautiful thing about biological research is that it's showing us that we are, in, we are more in control than we think. I mean, as you know, I don't choose one. I, I, I think whatever works, works. And and you can decide for yourself what, what works. But I think the science behind it is very powerful and helps you to even understand your spiritual approaches to it mm-hmm. so that you, know, you can lead a much, more, a much happier and productive life that's filled with purpose. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much, Srini. Thank you for your time. I honor you for this. Yeah. It's always awesome to talk with you. And I, yeah, and could, take up, I could take up your time for days too. <laughs> Martinis, though, on the table. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it very, very much. Well, that's too hard. Thank you. Um, any, any end comments or anything else that you want to uh, make as well? No, I, I really just wish that the people would remember that we're all in this together, even physiologically. Our brains are all connected, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. And that there's power to be found even outside of ourselves when we need it. And I wish for everyone who comes across your book and comes across this interview, if they come across it, to actually remember that they have access to this power. It's not just left out there for the special few. Mm, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. I love you, Srini. God bless you. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. You too, Adam. Take care.